What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of teaching with pizzazz, counting, and an author's process. Our first guest is education speaker Mary Bigler, and we'll discuss teaching with positive pizzazz. Then we'll speak with Elisa Belliston, a mathematics professor, about counting. Our last guest will be award-winning author Kate DiCamillo, and she'll answer some fans' questions. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with poems by Janet Wong and some author tips. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. I'm a librarian and educator by profession, but along with that, I'm also an artist. Through the years, I've found that when most people think about art and children, they automatically think of scribbles with crayons and stick figures balanced by smiling suns. But in today's classrooms, advocates of visual thinking strategies want us to see young people engaging with art in a much richer way. This means not only making art, but critically analyzing art at a very deep level. Visual thinking strategies ask for even the youngest children to view and critique great works of art using very basic questions. What's going on in this picture? What do you see that makes you say that? And what more can we find? These questions ask children to engage with key literacy skills as they observe, describe, and give support or evidence. We've always asked children to engage with these skills as they read printed text. But in today's world, applying these skills to visual images is just as important. In fact, we can no longer expect that reading is just about words. We also need to develop the ability to read visual images, including drawings, paintings, photographs, and even film. But even if these skills were not essential in the world we live in, it is also important to note that research has shown that students with strong visual thinking skills also show significant improvement in math and reading, and they also have healthier social and emotional growth. While practitioners are trained in visual thinking strategies at a very sophisticated level, the reality is that any adult can help children with the basics, with just a trip to a museum or gallery and a little conversation afterwards. So building visual thinking strategies in children can be just as easy as planning your next family outing. And that's a little tip from here at Rachel's World. Rachel's World. Have you ever wondered what type of messages we send our kids every day? How our interactions, positive or negative, impact their young lives? Today, we have Mary Bigler, an award-winning professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Eastern Michigan University, to approach these important questions. Welcome, Mary. Well, hello, and I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much. To start off, how would you characterize the way we should interact with kids? 
You know, I think that's such an important question, and we all need to reflect the kind of messages we send out to children each and every moment of our existence. I think we adults are the role models for children, and that the kinds of characteristics we have will be the kind of characteristics our young people will adopt because it will be what they know. So I say we have to be the very best people we can be if we expect our young people to grow up to be the kind of young people we want them to be, uh, people who are happy and active and sensitive and skilled, responsible, enthusiastic, productive, and loving adults. So how do we do that? What kind of qualities do we need to have as the adult role model for children that we expect they will adopt and have when they become the adult role model for the next generation. I like to say that parents and teachers and adults, whether they're grandparents or youth group leaders or whoever, anybody that's working with young people or influencing young people, that we've got to, we're really the textbooks for the children. They will see how we act and they will then act that way. So we need to have the characteristics that we want them to have. So if I could wave a magic wand and say, what characteristics would I like to see all of us have as adults in our interactions with children, I would probably start with, I want people to have great expectations for ourselves and for our young people. I always remember Dr. Norman Vincent Peale said, we tend to get what we expect. And I want children to know what we expect. I want them to know I expect them to do their homework. I expect them to be kind. I expect them to be honest. Whatever my expectations are, I want to make it clear so that that they know that I value them, I care about them, and I expect good things from them. Psychologists say that most human beings only use about 5% of their abilities. 5%. So I'm always encouraging the kids by saying, if you're satisfied with what you've done, you'll never do the best you can do. Mm-hmm. And thank heavens Edison wasn't satisfied with a kerosene lamp or Alexander Graham Bell wasn't satisfied with a carrier pigeon. Oh, yes. And, <laughs> yeah. And I'm often asked why American schools aren't doing as well as we would like in terms of educating our children. And I almost always come back to the idea of expectation. I think we've set our high bar too low. We have accepted mediocrity when we could ex- be expecting greatness from children. So I want to be an adult in a child's life that says, I expect great things out of you. Because many children will try to live up to our expectations. And if we don't have great expectations for them, they won't have great expectations for themselves. So that's one of my main characteristics I'd like all of us adults to have. That is so perfectly said, and I think something that we as adults definitely need to to address in our lives and really critically look and see if we we are expecting the very best from from That's our children right. and and from ourselves, as you know, which I think is is very important. A- as a teacher, too, you talk about teaching with verve and engagement and all of these kinds of characteristics that I think particularly are very important when we're in a learning context. So describe for us what that looks like and what kinds of words you would use to describe that kind of interaction and the the, the best kinds of positive environment that that would bring. Well, you said 
the right word for me, positive, because I believe, along with great expectations, we need to have positive attitudes about ourselves and the world. Our children are surrounded by a lot of negativity through the media and just from just the situations in the world. And I want to be a beacon of positivity for children. I want to be optimistic. I want to see the good so that my students, my children, my nieces, my nephews, my cousins' kids, my neighbor kids, my foster kids, I want them to be optimistic, and I want them to see the good. My mother used to recite a little poem that said, As you ramble through life's journey, whatever be your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. Love it. And don't we all know people who focus on the hole? Uh-huh. Yes, I do. You know, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Herbert Prochnow says, an optimist sees an opportunity in every calamity, and a pessimist sees a calamity in every opportunity. Or have you heard when the opportunity knocks, a pessimist complains about the noise? <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> or my favorite, a pessimist is someone who can look at the land of milk and honey and see only calories and cholesterol. Oh. <laughs> so. Lots of food analogies here, which I think is apt. Yes, yes, that's me. <laughs> so I want to I want to be someone who has a positive attitude about myself and about my students, about my children, about the world. Um, I always say to parents, if we parents act like parenting is hazardous to our health, how are our children going to know that we value and love them? I, I know there are people in our listening audience say, yeah, I agree with you. We do need a positive attitude, but how do you get one if you don't have one? That was my next well, question for you. So, yeah. yes, right. and, and, you know, I will say to our listening audience, if there's anybody out there that practices what she preached, it is Mary. And so I, I want to learn from your feet, Mary. So, so that's my next question is, you know, if we don't or if it's hard to, because sometimes, particularly as adults, it's hard for us to get past some of the trials that we've been having. And so how do we get to that positive place? Right. Well, you know what would be nice? If we could just go to the store and buy a positive attitude. Yes, I would love it. Okay. We're going to invent that magic potion, you and I. How's that? (laughs) There you go. That's an idea. Well, we all have to find our own way to to improve our attitude or get the attitude that we want. I think there's a variety of ways. We can listen to motivational speakers. We can read inspiring books. We can listen to music that puts us in a pot of positive mood. We can study scripture. We can have posters with positive affirmations displayed in our homes and offices, whatever it takes. But I will share one thing that works for me. It sounds so simple, but it really works. I try to put a smile on my face even when I don't feel like smiling. The strange thing is it puts me in a better mood as soon as I do it. And I think of Shakespeare who says, Assume a virtue if you have it not. In other words, if we don't feel like smiling, if we're not in a happy mood, if we don't have a positive attitude, just pretend. Assume the virtue if you have it not. So on the days I don't feel like smiling, I put a smile on anyway. And it's not long, and then that smile becomes legitimate. Because when you're around children, they are always saying and doing fun and happy things. And they're so innocent and sweet, you can't not smile at some of the things they say and do. And 
I think one of the whole reasons I became a teacher is I don't know anybody else who has an opportunity to laugh as much as a teacher during the course of a day. Because as a parent, you only have one, two, three, four, five children at home uh, making you laugh. But as a teacher, I have 25 or 30 kids a day making me laugh. So I think that um, being able to smile to then hopefully bring joy to somebody else conveys a positive attitude about yourself and the world and it lets children know things are going to be all right. We'll work through this. I know this math is hard, but I'm here to help you. Let's get through it. We can do it together. And if you have a smile on your face when you're saying that, the kids are relaxed and happy. And children don't learn when they're scared and tense. They learn when they're relaxed and happy and feel safe and secure. So as a teacher and as a parent, I want to I have a smile on my face. I always think of the play Annie. And my favorite song, everybody else says their favorite song in that show is Tomorrow. You know, the sun will come up tomorrow. And that is a positive, upbeat song. But my favorite song in Annie is You're Never Fully Dressed Without a Smile. And that resonates with me. It resonates with me, too. And I, I, I love this conversation that we need to have with ourselves about how our attitudes are impacting those around us. And I think particularly with children, this more high energy, being able to be positive and happy, just builds that safe environment that you're talking about. What would be one other tip that you could give to people in this vein to help them to build up their own positivity and the positivity in their children? Well, a gift I would like to give children is a sense of humor. Uh, What are we doing in our homes and schools to nurture a love of laughter? Laughter is the sunshine of the soul. It's contagious. It's therapeutic. And we adults have lived long enough to realize that life is not always going to be easy, that we are going to be dealt some blows. The question is, how resilient are we? What resources do we have to help us bounce back after we get knocked down? I think the ability to see humor in a situation can, in a situation can be very helpful in that case. So I really believe that um, if we have great expectations for children and convey those expectations, if we have positive attitudes about ourselves and the world, and we give the gift the gift of laughter and humor to children, I think we're doing a lot to prepare those youngsters to grow up to be happy and successful adults. And so I really do think we are the textbooks for children and that they're looking at us and studying us and whatever we portray is going to be what they will become. And that's why it's so critical that we be the very best people we can be. We're their inspirations for a lifetime. And I'm confident that we're going to be good role models and mentors for children if we have those qualities. I can't say it any better. I I just am in awe. Thank you, Mary. I truly appreciate your insight and, and helping us see how these great qualities are going to impact our children and how we can maybe give them those gifts of humor and a positive attitude that will help them to grow and develop. Thank you so much for visiting with us today. It's a treat for me always to visit with you and your listeners. Thank you. Mary Bigler is an award-winning professor at Eastern Michigan University and acclaimed author of Lessons Learned. Now, it's story time with a few local kids reading poems by Janet Wong. 
My name is Susanna Clark, and I'm going to be reading Anywhere by Janet Wong. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? Know what I heard? I heard there's a place in the mountains somewhere where fun is free and people play fair. If you feel bad, your neighbors care. The air smells green, crisp, and clean. Water's fresh from the spring. You can pick berries to picnic on near waterfalls and streams. When school's out, I'm going there. Want to come? Come. There's plenty to share. My name is Mary Clark. I am 10 years old, and I'm going to be reading Flying by Janet Wong. In their dreams, my friend can fly. They flap their arms and soar like hawks. I've never flown except in planes. I think I would be terrified to find the ground lost under me. I like to go to sleep at nine, curled up round in my safe bed, dreaming soft and fuzzy things, goose down dreams cradling my head. My name is Dorothy, I am eight, and I am reading a poem called Dog Dreams by Janet Wong. Our saddled dog kicks his feet, twitches, growls in his sleep, whimpers and snarls, yelps awake. I scratch behind his ears and take him out to let him sniff the trees, let him walk and chase the breeze, nose in air, eyes closed tight, chasing dreams into the night. My name is Caroline Clark, I'm 12, and I will be reading Talking in Her Sleep by Janet Wong. I'm lying awake in the top bunk, listening to my sister's snoring, boring a hole beneath my head when I hear her say, tomato. <laughs> and she starts to laugh like something snapped in her brain. Big round eyes gaze over, pointing to my upside down head, then settling down into sleep once more, leaving me red faced like a tomato. When we send our children into the world of education, it can be a little daunting and many questions arise. How much should they know before kindergarten? What needs to be taught at home? We're in studio today with Elisa Belliston to talk about helping our young children with mathematical concepts before and during they enter their early education. She is a previous elementary mathematics teacher and a current professor of mathematics here at BYU. Welcome, Elisa. Thank you. I am so excited to have you today. You bring to the table a really great understanding of mathematics for the young folks, and I'm excited for you to share your knowledge with our listening audience today, particularly those concerned adults or parents who ha- might have a little kiddo who's heading into kindergarten, right, and, and entering into this wonderful world of learning and mathematics. So help us today kind of break down what are we going to expect, particularly when we get a child going into you know kindergarten, first grade, those very basic levels. What are some of those things that they need to learn and how can we help them learn those things? So what's what's the first thing that we would expect or the first kind of concept that we would expect a young child to learn in a mathematical sense? 
Yeah, so um, counting with our little ones is definitely the most important thing and the thing that is focused on, hopefully, in our um, pre-K and kindergarten classes. And um, there's different aspects of counting that we want our children to uh, be able to engage in. And um, one of the things that I want to say up front is that Learning to count is a really fluid experience. So like some days we can count to 10 and some days we can't count to 10. <laughs> or like I might go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And I had, then I have 10 objects in front of me and I don't know that there's 10 objects in front of me, right? And so there's this rote counting that many of our children learn, which is just knowing that sequence and being able to say it. Um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 10, 1, 10, 2, you know, however it is that they go into the the next sequence of numbers, 11, 12, 13, those teen numbers yeah. are really tricky and, and kiddos need a lot of time um, exploring and talking about those, those numbers. But the three things, um, the three components of, of counting that we think about is that sequence, which is what we've been talking about. There is a sequence. It's not one, five, four, three, nine, seven, two. Yeah. Right. Although that is a beginning counting, right? That kiddo is counting. They know that we use numbers um, for counting. Um, there's the one-to-one correspondence. So if I have um, a pile of toy frogs, plastic frogs in front of me, and there's six of them, I'm going to touch the first one and say one. I'm going to touch the second one and say two. I'm going to touch the third one and say three. Um, and when I'm doing that, I have one-to-one correspondence. Now our littles might touch the first one, say one, two, three, then touch the table, four, five, then, you know, and get to ten, even though there's six there, and that's perfectly developmentally appropriate and what we want kiddos to be doing um, and is a perfect foundation for where we want them to go. Um, the third thing is the cardinality. Okay. So once I have counted those six frogs and my teacher asks me, so how many frogs do I know? Oh, there's six. Because I stopped at the number six, mm. there are six frogs here. Um, a little one might go one, two, three, four, five, six, have the sequence in the one-to-one correspondence, but then when asked how many, oh, ten, you yeah. know. And so – and there's not an order in which these three things occur. Um, and – so it's a little bit messy, <laughs> right? And as adults, we, love we it. Yes. don't like we that. We don't like the messy. We're just like, we need to have it exact. Like, get it. Yeah. Like, make it happen and do it now and, you yeah. know. and But kiddos need the opportunities to play with all of those different ideas around counting. I, I think that word play stands out to me really significantly because I think sometimes, you know, when we see them doing it wrong or, you know, they say five, seven, eight, ten, you know, instead of one, two, three – we think, oh, no, they didn't do it right. But they really are doing it right mm -hmm. in that kind of concept. And so saying something like, oh, how fun we're playing with our numbers and, you know, those types of things that make it positive and say, oh, you know, you didn't do that right helps to bring this sense of it can be messy mm -hmm. and we can do it differently. And developmentally, we may go back and forth between things. So I love that sense of approaching it with play. Yeah. Yeah, and and the idea of what does this child know? Yeah, 
right? Not the focus of what doesn't this child know, but what does this child know? Yeah, yeah. So once we get beyond those three things and we do the one-to-one and the, the cardinality and all of those things, what, what are some of our next steps? Where do we need to go next? Yeah, so we have structure um, in our number system. We use a base 10 um, number system, which means that we regroup. Once we get to 10, it's 110, right? Like it can be thought of in multiple ways. It can be thought of as 10 ones, right? But it can also be thought of as 110. We can think of the number 36 as three tens and six ones, or we could think of it as two tens and 16 ones, yeah. right? And so having this fluid understanding, and maybe that's jump that's jumping up a little bit beyond kindergarten. <laughs> got to put that yeah, out yeah, there. We, yeah, we're, we're moving <laughs> up. We've, we've got the basics. Yeah, we're, we're, we're increasing. Yes, but things that we want for kiddos to be able to do um, before we get there um, is um, – thinking about the structure of the base 10. And we do that with something called a five frame or a 10 frame, okay, which is um, just a, an array or a chart, like a, um, a table that has, it's a one by five table, right? And so if I fill in three of those squares with my little toy frogs, I know there's three and I know that there's two that aren't filled in. Right. Or I can see that there's one filled in and four that aren't filled in and one plus four equals five. Right. And so and also doing that with the 10 frame where there's 10 spots to put things. And if I've filled in six of them, I might have a whole row of five and then one more filled in. Right. Yeah. Or I might have three on one side and three on the other side. Okay, So thinking about the number six and fluid lots of different flexible ways. Um, It might be the four corners and then two other spots, right? So there's lots of different ways that kiddos can think about um, the number 10. The other thing that we want for our children to experience is to be able to um, be able to quickly recognize numbers. Um, So if you're playing the game Candyland, and you roll the dice, right? Mm, and they see yes. the the one um, dot on the dice, and they know that's one, right? And um, <clears throat> this is called subitizing. Some people say subitizing, subitizing. It, it works out. For it both. works out for both, <laughs> right? But we want for our kiddos to be able to see. Oh, that's a group of three. That's a group of two. Over here's a group of two. Over here's a group of three. And when I put those together, that makes five. So being able to see numbers um, through dice and um, just, you know, if you have some water bottles, how many water bottles are right there? And some of our kids are going to automatically know that it's three and some of them are going to one, two, three. Um, And so we want to give um, our young children lots of opportunities to play games that – provide that structure. Um, Shoots and Ladders is another nice one. Candyland. Um, oh, did I say Candyland before? It doesn't even have dice. Forget Candyland for this there conversation. <laughs> hey, Shoots and Ladders is a really nice one because yeah. it has the dice and like, and they go up and they go down and you can talk about numbers. Yeah. The numbers are right there on the board. Or even Connect Four, right, where you see mm, yes. those arrays um, and you can see, oh, there's five 
six going across the bottom. I'm not sure how many, yeah. but, you know, and three down and how many do we have? And talking about numbers while playing playing games like that yeah. with our littles. It seems to me that if I can kind of, you know, pull this all together, that what we're talking about here is building a sense of sequence and pattern. Mm-hmm. So we're helping them to look at patterns and sequences and Particularly with younger children, it seems like the ways you're describing, it's much more tactile, hands-on, and visual that we're doing this. So we're not really at this point looking at the abstract. We're looking at the more concrete ways that we can express numbers and patterns within numbers. Am, am I characterizing that correctly? Yes, I think so. I mean, I definitely with kindergartners, I'm not going to write the equation 4 plus 3 equals 7. Um, but we might want them to realize that 1, 2, 3, 4 – the numeral looks like this, right? And so there is, but we might do that with Play-Doh, right? Um, and build numbers um, with Play-Doh. And, and, but even um, as kids get older, there's, there's a sequence called concrete, semi-concrete, and abstract. So we want concrete objects, semi-concrete where we draw pictures, um, and then abstract where we're using the algorithm. And those littles really need a lot of that concrete. Um, but as we get to new um, mathematical concepts, going back to that, I mean, do you ever count on your fingers yeah. when you're tired? <laughs> oh, yes. Right? Or just yes, like whatever. Like we yeah. still do that as adults. I still do my nines times tables with my fingers. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah. And like that's like that's the best manipulative right there. Yeah. Like use those fingers. Yeah. So. Yeah, that really seeing that sense of making this concrete and bringing that concrete. And there's so many concrete things we can do in our homes to do that. You've given us some great examples. But as we close our conversation today, maybe one or two more examples of some really concrete things that we could do in our home to bring these kinds of basic mathematical concepts into our child's lives. Yeah. So just because we were just talking about like numerals, like having rice and writing the numerals one, two, and then doing two dots next to it. Um, in our homes, we can, I mean, even just cleaning up, like we're going to count to 10 as we're cleaning up or, oh, we have five people that are going to get in the car. What are, how many shoes do we need to put on these feet? Um, there's always the opportunity for counting, setting the table. How many forks do we need? How many people? Let's count together. One, two, three. So it's all around us if we um, are thinking about it and making just a little extra effort to incorporate that into our daily lives. Well, and let's do that. Let's all make that little extra effort so we can have some kiddos who are have great math identities and, and get these basics and are ready to, to build from there. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Elisa Belliston is a mathematics professor here at BYU. Now, let's hear some tips from authors, Tim Wynne-Jones, Martine Levitt, and Patrice Kindle. Well, I think the most important thing is to write whatever you want to write. Now, you know, we all have to write things in school, and the stories we write in school are often not very interesting. Um... But when you're writing on your own, you can write whatever you want. And I would say, and this is, of course goes flies in the face of what any teacher would say, when you're writing on your own, you don't have to finish something. If you get bored with it, then don't keep writing it. Because, and jump to, do, to something else. I don't know, I, I have, every writer I know has written many, many stories that they didn't finish. 
um, and they didn't finish it because they got bored with it. Well, I think that I, uh, what I want to say to young readers is, is write something that's fun and exciting for yourself, and the minute it stops being fun and exciting, uh, you know, stop and do something else. The thing is that that prepares the, a writing muscle in, in a young writer. One of the worst things that can happen if you're young is you get a good idea, but you just you haven't done enough exercise, so to speak. You haven't written enough to be able to carry out this, this good idea. So the more you write, even if you don't finish things, the more you write, the more muscle you're getting, the more writing muscle. And then one day you get the really big idea. And it's worth pushing on and you keep pushing on. And, uh, and before you know it, voila, you've got something, um, you know, big, maybe even a novel. But you can't do that without um, the play. You have to play at it. You have to enjoy it before you can do, get down to the work. I would say to read a lot, to write a lot, have fun. Don't feel like you have to finish things. Just have fun. Um, Writing is like anything else. The more you do it, the better you get. I would say also that as they live their faith, it will enrich their art. They do not have to leave their faith behind in order to be artists. In fact, just the opposite. And so I think that's probably, if I had to distill it down to just one or two things, that would be it. Most writers, every once in a while you will find an exception to this, but most writers are addictive readers. They read a lot. You need to read a lot, and you need to write a lot. You need to have broad interests. You need to... Not just read in your own genre, read there, absolutely do, but you need to take in the world. This is one of the wonderful things about being a writer, is that you are always learning. You are always um, finding out more about the solar system, about, um, you know, uh, biology, about all kinds of things that broaden your world. This is one of the reasons that people are willing to, you know, be artists, because even though it's a somewhat uncertain way of earning a living, it is such a richly rewarding and satisfying experience. Go out and learn and experience, and then come home and sit down and give yourself a Make, make sure you do sit down and work regularly. That's, that's always an important one. That's the only real rule is you have to do it. <laughs> Just talking about doing it is not the same thing as doing it. We all have that one childhood book that's been worn from reading it over and over again. Imagine what an absolute thrill it would be for a child or even a grown adult to meet the author of that precious book. We have a favorite author of mine, Kate DiCamillo, on the phone with us today to answer a few of my students' questions. She is the acclaimed author of Because of Winn-Dixie and the Tale of Despero. Welcome, Kate. Oh, thank you. I, I, I'm looking forward to, to answering all of your students' questions. 
so oh. it's kind of like I, I'm taking a test almost. Almost, almost, yes. You, you, you're going to take the final exam for my children's literature class on yourself <laughs> <laughs> today. Oh, <laughs> uh, it, it is, it, it is so wonderful. And you know, like I said, this my ch- my my students in my children's literature class just were so excited. You you are obviously a rock star in their eyes of, of all of all of this stuff. So one of the first things um, that we're interested in knowing is, of course, about your Mercy Watson series. So for our audience who may not be familiar with it, why don't you describe it a little bit for us? So Mercy Watson um, is a pig, and she lives with Mr. and Mrs. Watson, and they're not pigs. And uh, Mr. and Mrs. Watson live on Dekawu Drive. They have uh, uh, two elderly sisters as neighbors on one side, Eugenia and Baby Lincoln. And then uh, uh, a little bit further down the street on Dekawu Drive are Frank and Stella, two kids who live on the block. And um, Mercy loves to eat toast with a great deal of butter. And um, she uh, is just the apple of Mr. and Mrs. Watson's eyes. And uh, Frank and Stella love her. Baby Lincoln loves her. Eugenia Lincoln is appalled by the very existence of Mercy. So that's basically like uh, everything centers around Mercy and Mercy wanting toast, and all the hijinks that ensue are because Mercy wants toast and um, Eugenia Lincoln thinks that Mercy should not exist. So there's just people i actually get a lot of this from kids in the mail but it's very easy to to people say where do the stories come from all you have to do is put mercy in a situation and then just stand back and watch her make a shambles out of it in her efforts to like get toast and so you can put her in all kinds of situations and kids will send me their stories where you know mercy one of my favorites recently was mercy watson gets visited by the irs that one really made me laugh <laughs> oh I, i'm so sorry that, that young children have to worry about the irs at that young age that that's that's quite that's quite shocking but but i another good one i would mercy love to, i would love to hear that reads moby dick oh that was another great one yeah okay so, I mean, so that's and the kids exactly have the idea of it all you have to do is think of a situation put mercy in it and then you've got you know a story you just follow her through the story so they're kind of you know they're 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 filled with hijinks and they're very very fun to do and um and it when i did the first one i turned it in <clears throat> to my agent and she said i have no idea what this is but i love it and i'll send it to the publisher and they said we don't know what this is but we love it and we'll figure out a way to make it work and so it was kind of like it's not quite an easy reader and it's not quite a novel and so then um wonderfully uh, librarians and teachers found a way to to use it and it's um and kids have taken mercy to heart you know they so certainly have. That was I, a long answer. No, sorry. no, no. It's a wonderfully, it's a wonderfully beautiful answer, and and you just answered more than you knew about what what we were asking. But th- that's the really interesting thing about Mercy Watson to me is it's what I would classify as an intermediate reader. So it's it's kind of past that kind of very beginning stage, but not quite at the novel stage. So it's a wonderful transitional piece, um, particularly for students in maybe like first, second, third grade who are still developing their own independent reading skills. So how is it to write a book like that that maybe is a little 
shorter. It's more like a short story in some ways than it is a full novel. What are what are some of the differences in approaching that kind of writing? Um, it, it is it, well, one, it's it, in many ways it's less fraught than writing a novel because one, it's shorter, and so uh, it takes a lot less time to find the arc of it. You know, I exist for. Uh, long, dark periods writing a novel because I never know how it's going to turn out, and I don't. It takes me a while to figure out what the the arc of it is. And because this is shorter and because so much of, like, the original Mercy Watson's are dictated by language, there's kind of like a rhythm to it, and you get into that rhythm, and you follow the pig wherever she goes. And so it, it doesn't have a lot of the problems that you have with uh, writing a novel. And it's deeply satisfying to me because I need to write the novels, and I and and I. It's kind of like writing a Mercy Watson is like having um, sorbet in between big courses at a dinner because it kind of cleanses your palate and it makes you feel uh, upbeat. And it's like it's a way for me to refresh myself and uh, and to have fun, and then to go back into the novel where things are a lot harder. So it's like there's no difference other than that shortness and there's it's less fraught emotionally does that make sense yes oh it, it, that's a wonderful way to describe it the the other interesting thing with some of your books including um the mercy watson series is there's also selected illustrations um in yeah. in the books so how do you feel that the illustrations interact with the story and why do you think that they're important as part of the story Oh, they're so important. And let's just have a moment to, like, sing the praises of Chris Van Dusen. Oh, yes. Praise, praise. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he yes. is a genius. Yes, yeah. And, and it, that, it, just before, it, like, so say you're a kid, and you probably know this better than I do because this is what you do. You You can take all this apart in a way that I can't. But if you're a kid and you're a little bit afraid, right, because here's a book that's longer, and you're going to read it on your own, and um, you know that things are expected of you. You open it up, and you see one of Chris's illustrations, which is so happy, buoyant, uh, celebratory, and you feel safe, and you feel like, oh, wait a minute, this is going to be fun. And so the the illustrations, even before you are on, you know, doing the work of the words, the illustrations tell you everything's going to be okay. We're going to have fun, and um, that's it. so. Chris, his art, um, like, echoes and enlarges the text. Does is that right? Because yes, again, you're the professional. No, no, that that's a that's a beautiful way to describe it. I that is a very authorly way echoes and enlarges and that's the way I would describe it too and I think that the illustrations particularly in Mercy Watson do that with such delight um, I, I think that Mercy is is so much more a deep character <laughs> when we see her in the illustrations as well as read about her antics yeah, yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Mercy, mercy. So wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that, Kate. And I know that that's something that um, my students and I are just so excited to hear you talk about. One of the other things kind of totally changing directions um, that we would love to ask you is about the strength of your female characters. I, I think you are one author that, that writes female characters, particularly children, 
with such grace and beauty, and particularly in your current, your most current books, you you write such strong female characters, and particularly in the political climate today that my my young students are going into as teachers and and thinking about how to navigate, um, particularly helping their young ladies in their classes to to navigate the the fraught environment that we are as women. What what would you say to them when they ask, you know, why do you write these strong female characters? And what is important about that to you? Um, I, you know, it, it's we, we are in uh, a, a golden age of strong female characters, I think, um, in children's books. But when I think back to what I read when I was a kid, um, they were there then, too. I think about Anne, uh, you know, uh, and... You know, Montgomery's, I mean, those books, I love those books, and she's the strongest character of all. Um, And so they've always been around, and they guided me, and now it's thrilling to think that some of these female characters of mine will guide another generation of readers. And Louisiana is a good example of just her absolute resilience, and this is in it, and the first time... Um, I thought about this with uh, what was when I was talking about Ramy when Ramy Nightingale came out, and um, Ramy does this miraculous thing at the end of that book, uh, something that she probably never would have thought she was capable of. And um, I thought so much of what this book is about is not even realizing how strong you are, and that and that message I think gets through in Ramey Nightingale, and it also comes through in Louisiana's story, you are much stronger than you realize. And um, what a, a wonderful thing for, um, for children to know and for uh, girls to know. Okay, that that is so beautiful, and I could not agree more. The that message of you can do more than you think you can, and you are stronger than you think you are, is such a powerful direct message for so many readers. And I, I appreciate that your characters and your your novels bring that out. But as, again, just switching gears completely as we close up today, you that quintessential question that I think everybody always asks you, what can we expect next from you, Kate? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Well, um, I think that there might be a novel about Beverly Topensky from uh, Ramey Nightingale. And uh, and I've got a couple of shorter things that I'm working on, too. And and I want to keep on telling stories for as long as I can. I feel like, boy, lucky me that I get to do this, and I I can't believe um, that I get to. So let me keep working. That's what I say. Well, keep working, Kate, because I could not want to see what comes out of your pen any more than you want to. So I'm, I am a, a huge, a huge fan who is just going to be waiting on bated breath to, to see what we can find next and to have that beautiful opportunity to, to crack the covers of a brand new book by you and to dive in and feel the joy and just laughter and humor and sadness and tears and all of the things that come with a beautiful story told by Kate DiCamillo. Thank you so much. Tell your students that I said hello. Kate DiCamillo is a two-time Newbery Medalist winner.
Now join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. Today I'm in studio with Joe and Marissa, two librarians here at BYU, to talk about how to get children interested in family history. We're in studio today with Joe and Marissa, who are two librarians here at BYU, and their focus is family history and genealogy. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks. You know, family history and genealogy is like a huge hobby around the world. I mean, I think some studies have shown that it's like the A number one hobby out there. And so lots of people are involved in it. And I know from our perspective as religious people um, in our own religion, we connect with this idea of genealogy and family history. But that is kind of a macro look at it. But let's take a little micro look at it. How do we get our families interested in it? And how do we get our kids particularly interested in it? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of really good reasons to do that. So jump in, Marissa. Tell us, you know, if if you say this thing of family history or this hobby of family history, how do we get how do we get kids and teens interested in it? How do we how do we get them on this path? Okay. Well, I was thinking about this in regards to my own kids. So I have three, they're six and under. And and I, I can't really just show them, a, you know, the family tree and be like, oh, look, this is this person and they died then. I think it's easier if you do it through stories and pictures. And and it depends on the age group, too. You have to be be aware of that. Um, but but bringing up stories and and it doesn't have to be this big thing like we're going to spend two hours doing family history. It's in the moment. It's when your son's talking about something. And you're like, oh, your grandpa did that. Or um, when I was your age, I had the same thought, and and kind of bring their awareness that the things they're going through have, um, pre, you know, family members have gone through the same thing, or um, you know they were your age once, and things like that. So bringing the family back to them in in situations that just come up. Yeah, I, I love that sense that the stories are foundational. But you mentioned photographs. And that's one thing, particularly as librarians, that I think we're pretty interested in, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're record people, right? We love, we love archives and records. And there's so many of those kinds of things, not just photographs, but, you know, films and all kinds of, you know, birth records and death records and all those kinds of cool kinds of things for at least for us for librarians that make up genealogy. So how do how do we get them involved in that stuff, too? I mean, is there is there a way to make you know dusty archives interesting for kids and teens? <laughs> That's a tough question, I know. <laughs> well, you know, I I actually brought my little my youngest boy into the library for his birthday. It was part of his a birthday outing, and we'd gone out to eat, and um, we'd gone in to his favorite toy store, and then we came to the library to do a little family history and. He actually wanted to use the old microfilm reader and and help me put it on the on the reader the film on the reader and uh, one of the things he said as we were leaving we we looked at the newspaper from the day he was born and he was really interested to see um, especially the comics page from the, <laughs> his <it. laughs> from his birth date and uh, but as we were leaving he says I like old stuff. You know, so um, some of that, you know, we maybe need to give ourselves or give our kids a little more credit that that they, they might be interested in these things. Now, you know, it's not for everyone, uh, but today, you know, there's 
lots of ways that with through digitization and with the indexing technology and things that uh, have made it so that those dusty archives are more at our fingertips. And uh, more and more, there's uh, apps and um, other software tools that have been made available that make uh, family history uh, fun and, and accessible so that you can visually, graphically see, you know, a representation of it with, and it's colorful and it's like gamified to some extent, you know, little shaky leaves telling you that, oh, there's a hint that maybe we found an old document about your family and click on that and the next thing you know, you may be seeing your ancestor's signature on a hundred-year-old document, you know, and that kind of thing can be interesting for, for kids. Maybe not really young kids, but... Um, you know, older grade school kids and middle school kids and, and teenagers too, potentially. You know, I know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been moving in that direction with some of their technology. And even here at our library, we're we're starting to have like gamified things through technology in our library to bring our young adults at the university in. I think that opens a whole new realm to family history in a way that we haven't seen before and access to these kinds of documents and data in a way that is just more fun and interesting and exciting and detective work almost, I guess that's the way to describe it. Does that, does that sound about right? <laughs> well, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a, an element to, to it that it's like a game and there's also an element to it that's like, you know, like a detective work, a detective um, like detective work. <clears throat> like uh, one thing that's really popular these days is uh, escape rooms, you know. And if you think about it, family history can be kind of like that. You're looking for clues and you're looking for an answer to a puzzle. And that can be fun in that same way. Um, you just need to, you know, find ways to tap into that. And I know that for me, too, one of the things I love about this kind of thing is that it's made family history more graphical. Because I know, like Marissa, in our family history center that we have here at BYU, we have this big printable thing where you can print this big fan chart. And it's like this big, huge fan of all of your ancestors and you can see where things are missing. And I mean, I think that would be fun for kids too to kind of engage in that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that'd be a fun activity too. You can kind of see what's been done and then print it out. And I've got one in my office and my kids thought it was cool. It was colorful. They're little, but as they get older, um, yeah, it's a fun thing to hang up. People come in a lot for fan charts. But even if, even if they just think it's colorful, I mean, at least they're noticing, right? They're paying yeah. attention to it, which yeah. I guess is part of that foundation just to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Well, photos can be a really powerful way to connect to your family, especially when kids can see uh, a resemblance. Like, oh my gosh, that looks just like you, Dad. Mm-hmm. We have a picture of, of my kid's grandmother, and it's a spitting image of my daughter. Um, or my daughter is the spinning Im- image of her grandmother in that photo. And um, I have a photo of myself when I was five, and I... I posted this on Facebook, um, my five-year-old school photo right next to my son when he was five years old, and we're like twins, <laughs> you know. And But you can see, oh, you look, you, you have this person's eyes or this person's dark hair or this person's nose. And, uh, and that can be a really a fun, fun way for them to have these people come alive to them and to see that, you know, I really am connected to them because – 
I can even see in in the mirror that I look like them. That's really cool to have that kind of sense, right? Where you're saying, this is a person I may not have known because it may be a grandparent or a great grandparent that passed away before the child was born and saying, you know, this was a real person that is connected to you in that very fundamental, obvious way. That's, I really, I really like that perspective. Thank you so much, both of you. This has been very enlightening and I hope that we'll encourage more people to go out there and start just getting involved in family history. I'd like to thank Joe and Marissa for coming around the librarian's table with me today. We've had such a great show. First, we had Mary Bigler talk to us about teaching with positivity. Then we spoke with mathematics professor Elisa Bellinston about counting at young ages. Our last guest was award-winning author Kate DiCamillo, who answered some fans' questions. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram, at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.